This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Amicus is sponsored by The Great Courses, engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like Privacy, Property, and Free Speech, Law and the Constitution in the 21st Century. Get 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com amicus. And by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, the new documentary series from HBO. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8, only on HBO. Hi, and welcome to Amicus, Slate's Supreme Court podcast. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, Slate's Supreme Court correspondent. Just a few weeks ago, the Supreme Court agreed to hear Glossop versus Gross, a challenge to the way Oklahoma executes its capital defendants and a question under the Eighth Amendment of whether the lethal injection protocol used violates the Eighth Amendment ban on cruel and unusual punishment. The decision to hear the case was especially confusing because within a span of just a few days, the Supreme Court allowed one Oklahoma execution to go forward, agreed to hear the case, and then halted three other executions. It's also a little bit confusing because just seven years ago, in 2008, the U.S. Supreme Court decided in Bayes versus Reese that Kentucky's lethal injection protocol was not, in fact, cruel and unusual under the Eighth Amendment and let other states know that this protocol was perfectly permissible. Today's podcast is not about the death penalty. It's about lethal injection in the states that allow for the death penalty and how the protocol has changed in the eight years since the Supreme Court last looked at it. It's a very confusing issue, and we've asked to join us two people who think a lot about lethal injection. Joining us today are Professor Deborah Denno, who teaches at Fordham University Law School and is an expert on the death penalty, and Dr. Joel B. Zivit, who practices anesthesiology and intensive care medicine and also is on the faculty at Emory University Hospital. We're going to first turn to Dr. Joel B. Zivit. Welcome to Amicus, Joel Zivit. Hi, Dahlia. Thanks for having me. I think we need to just start with the question that I am asked whenever I talk about lethal injection, and it's a quite grotesque one, but it's one that came up at the Supreme Court in oral arguments in 2008, and that is simply this. Why is it that we can euthanize dogs and we can't figure out a way to humanely kill human beings? 
Well, Dolly, I think you're, of course, you're right at the heart of it. And first of all, I want to say that with respect to humane killing, um, I am not an expert. I'm not sure even that the court or that the Constitution actually asks for that. What it asks for is that uh, that punishment be not needlessly cruel. And that doesn't mean, if it's not needlessly cruel, that doesn't mean it is therefore humane. And so I think within this this debate, it's important to separate those. And the second thing is, again, to your original question, these things that are used to execute are not uh, made for that purpose. And so I find it an odd question, and though it's a question that is asked of me often, why can't we kill people? I guess I would say that, first of all, I am no doctor is an expert in killing, and no pharmaceutical company creates compounds specific with the idea that they would be therefore used to execute people. Truly what is, for me, I think mind-bending about this debate is the cocktail of drugs that are used. It's incredibly hard if you're not a chemist or a pharmacist to comprehend the original three-drug protocol and how it's changed. So could you take us back to the days when all of the 30-some states that administered lethal injection used the same protocol and tell us about the three drugs that were, in effect, blessed by the Supreme Court in the case of Bayes versus Reese? Sure. So back in 2008, at the time of that decision, the drugs that were used began with a drug that, uh, that is called sodium thiopental, followed by a second drug that was called pancuronium bromide, followed by a third drug that is potassium chloride. The second drug, pancuronium bromide, and I want to maybe start up by talking about that one. What that drug is, is it's called a paralytic. What the effect of this is, is that uh, when a person has been given this medication, even though their brain would say, I want to you know, move my finger, in the setting of this drug, uh, not a single muscle in the body, not a single skeletal muscle in the body, rather, would be able to move even if a person wanted to. Now, the drug has no effect on the heart, and it has no effect on the muscles of the gastrointestinal tract, and it has no effect on consciousness or awareness. So if you gave this drug to someone and you injected it into them, the effect of it outwardly would be a person who would not be moving, not be breathing, not be reacting in any clear and obvious way. And if that was the only thing that you gave them, they would slowly die by suffocation. Now, outwardly, it would look quite peaceful. It might even look like sleeping. We understand that to give that, though, by itself, would clearly be a cruel way of, of causing someone's death. And so the first drug that began before the pancuronium was called sodium thiopental. Now, this drug is in a class called a barbiturate. And these were like the old sleeping pills uh, of years ago. Um, that's what these drugs um, are, are in that same class. Now, what's important to note right away is that this drug is no longer available. It's gone from the market. And the reason why it's gone is because the single manufacturer of the drug uh, was a company called Hospira, that was manufacturing this drug in Italy. And the European Union has a, has a very clear statement that says that a drug that is made anywhere within the European Union can never be used for lethal injection. And so the European Union asked Hospira, you know, can you guarantee that this drug will not be ending up in lethal injection? And Hospira said, no, we cannot guarantee it. Therefore, we will stop making it. 
Joel, when the court looked at the lethal injection protocol in Kentucky in 2008, they looked at the first two drugs you mentioned, but then they also looked at a third, potassium chloride. I wonder if you could speak to that for a minute. Sure. So potassium chloride, in this circumstance, the way the potassium chloride is working is that potassium will cause an effect directly on the heart muscle now. And as the potassium level in the blood rises, that directly affects the ability of the heart muscle to contract. I will say also that when potassium is injected, it's quite painful. It's a painful drug to inject. It burns as it is injected. And so it's really necessary when that drug is injected that it be in a circumstance where one can be certain that a person would otherwise not feel the injection of the potassium. Joel, I wonder if you can tell us what the cocktail is that Oklahoma is now using and what's been used in the spectacular kind of botched executions that we've witnessed over the past few years. What's changed in the cocktail and what is it that the Supreme Court is looking at? Well, sure. So so two things happen. If you remove the paralytic drug, for example, this is what happened for the execution in uh, Ohio and also the execution in Arizona where the uh, witnesses, what they observed was this prolonged and what seemed to be a very difficult execution where the inmate was struggling and breathing abnormally. There was no paralyzer in those circumstances. And so what you saw was what actually happens to people without the paralyzer. And I think that that's very important because the paralyzer for a long time has been hiding, I think, an important fact here that these drugs don't do what even what the Supreme Court, I think, imagined that they do. Now, the barbiturate, the sodium thiopental, which, uh, again, is gone, has been replaced by a drug called midazolam. Midazolam is a drug that, unlike sodium thiopental, it is very, very specifically targeted to one part of the brain that's involved in, in awareness and in, in uh, mediating consciousness. Now, if you combine midazolam with a paralytic, and it all goes right, it again looks like a very peaceful, without struggle sort of death by suffocation. But if you take the paralytic away and give midazolam instead of barbiturates, it looks altogether different. I mean, you know, barbiturates and benzodiazepines, which is midazolam, are not at all, like they're so different in such an important way that it is kind of astounding you know, and I understand why this is happening because people in charge of lethal injection, you know, are not pharmacologists nor physicians nor interested in, you know, their interest is something entirely different. Uh, and the paralytic, you know, it covers a lot of sins, a lot of sins. And when the paralytic is not there, the sins are revealed. I wonder if you could speak to the question of the extent to which, since the Supreme Court last heard this case, so many states have really drawn a veil of secrecy around their lethal injections so that we don't actually know often what's happening in Ohio, that there are reporters who are barred from finding out, that FOIA requests are thwarted, and that in conjunction with the questions around the drugs themselves, there is this culture of if we don't let anyone see what we're doing, nobody will find out what we're doing. I mean, this is, I think, the most disturbing development, I think, in what's been happening with lethal injection. I think that most people would say that if you've got nothing to hide, then don't hide it. I also would go so far as to say that, and though this may seem like an odd thing to assert, that 
executions need to be observed. Remember that with respect to the yardstick of cruelty, that the only person can really know whether or not the death was needlessly cruel, of course, is the person who can no longer speak, which would therefore be the deceased inmate. So in fact, the standard for measuring cruelty is all about the observer. Only the observer can really know whether it appears cruel. We have no kind of cruelty test or cruelty measurement per se other than how it appears before us. And so every effort should be made, I think, to allow citizens to properly observe to be sure that justice you know, is being carried out in the way that it is intended. And so the fact that the state is creating this veil of secrecy is most disturbing. Now, further, with respect to how this is particularly troublesome to the practice of medicine, is that as a physician, of course, my medical practice is regulated by state medical board, which administers uh, um, the practice of medicine under the a Medical Practice Act. I willingly submit myself. They grant me a license. And uh, if I do something wrong, then it's up for them to say so. Now, in the circumstance of a secrecy law, what now happens is that now there is a physician who is practicing something, whether one calls it medicine or not, but something akin to it. And now the identity of that person is a secret. It's a secret to a state medical board. And the only people that perhaps know are the warden or the governor. So now the governor now has decided that they are the purveyors of the practice of medicine. They are the experts and they are the regulators. This is most disturbing. Medical boards must be separate and stand as an impartial protector of the public interest and not be regulated by legislators in this sort of way who clearly have no understanding of the ethical constraints or what constitutes good practice or bad. And if there were one thing that you could tell the justices as they prepare to hear the Oklahoma case, what is it? Is it that lethal injection simply can't be fixed? Lethal injection can never meet the requirement for not needlessly cruel punishment, period. And as between that and states that are talking about returning to the electric chair and firing squads? You know, that's the state's business. You know, as I understand the law, each one of those things went away because people recognized them as cruel. So the fact that we could take away lethal injection and then go back to something that we already set aside as being cruel, well, this is puzzling to me. I don't think that would be permitted, but I'm not an expert in, you know, in punishment, and I'm certainly not an expert in cruel punishment. Dr. Joel B. Zivit practices anesthesiology and intensive care medicine. He also teaches at Emory University Hospital. Dr. Zivit, thank you very, very much for joining us today on Amicus. Thanks for having me. Now, before we move on to our next guest, we want to pause and talk a little bit about today's sponsor. Most of you are probably listening to this podcast because you're intrigued and fascinated by the law and the courts and the Constitution, and you want to learn as much about that as possible. Well, that was the motivation behind The Great Courses. The Great Courses is a series of courses, over 500, believe it or not, in all sorts of subjects, including the law and the Constitution, and it is available in audio and video formats. The Great Courses series on privacy, property, and free speech, law and the Constitution in the 21st century, is a perfect fit for people who listen and to Amicus. It includes eye-opening insights into all sorts of things that we talk about on the show, including privacy, technology, freedom, and the sorts of things that you should worry about and probably do worry about if you're thinking about the Supreme Court. Privacy, Property, and Free Speech is taught by the amazing Jeff Rosen, who knows and thinks about these subjects as much as anyone in America today. 
The Great Course has created a special limited-time offer just for Amicus listeners. If you order from eight of their best-selling courses, including Privacy, Property, and Free Speech, you will get them at up to 80% off the original price. So please don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. That's thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. We're going to turn now to Deborah Denno, who teaches at Fordham Law School and who is an expert on the death penalty and has written extensively about the Supreme Court and the death penalty. Welcome to Amicus, Deborah. Thank you. Now I want to play for you, Chief Justice John Roberts, uh, reading the opinion that uh, he authored in Bayes in 2008 that really went through and said, here's what Kentucky does, here's what the other states do, and here's why it just does not violate the Eighth Amendment. So here he is. Because our cases require proof of a substantial risk, a prisoner may not succeed on his Eighth Amendment claim merely by showing a slightly or marginally safer alternative. Otherwise, courts would become embroiled in endless litigation seeking to determine best practices for capital punishment, an issue that would often turn on scientific controversies beyond judicial expertise. Such an approach would, with no justification, intrude on the role of the states in implementing execution procedures, a role that, by all accounts, the states have fulfilled by providing for progressively more humane manner of implementing capital punishment. Deborah, can you help us understand why it is that the court anticipated that there were not going to be problems with lethal injections, and yet only a few years later they're having to hear it again? Well, there are a number of differences between Bayes in 2008 and what we're seeing with Glossop today. First of all, in in 2008, all the death penalty states in this country were basically using the same three-drug protocol. So there was safety in numbers, and this is something that the court emphasized in 2008 in reaching its decision that the method that Kentucky was using was constitutional because it was very similar to all the other methods that, you know, other states were using. And this was a three-drug protocol. Fast forward to now, to 2015, where we have lethal injection, but there are many different protocols being used throughout the country. In the history of the United States, we've never seen anything like this. We've never had a situation where so many different states are using so many different protocols for executing people. That's number one. Number two, these states are using and adopting drugs that aren't suitable only because they can't find drugs elsewhere. And this is one of the core issues in litigation in in the state of Oklahoma. Can you just back up and tell us where did all those states get that initial three-drug cocktail that they all emulated? Sure. I mean, in 1977, there had been a moratorium on the death penalty uh, with the Supreme Court rulings between 1972 and 1976. So lo and behold, we were starting to have executions again. And there were several concerns at the time. The first concern was that executions might be televised, in which case uh, executioners or departments of corrections would have to have a method that would be viewable by people throughout the country 
country. Uh, secondly, there was a concern that the method at least look as humane as possible. So in the state of Oklahoma, ironically enough, uh, legislators went to a physician, his name was Jay Chapman, and asked him to concoct a formula, a three-drug formula that would be acceptable for use for executing somebody. And in the course of about half a day with another state legislature, Chapman came up with the three-drug protocol that we were using in this country from 1977 to 2008. I wonder if we can talk about the U.S. Supreme Court for a moment, because we're speaking as though it's a given that there's kind of a controversy in this country about capital punishment. But of course, no member of the U.S. Supreme Court, as it's currently constituted, opposes the death penalty in principle. The last person who felt that way was John Paul Stevens. He, in fact, used his concurring opinion in Bayes versus Reese in 2008 to say, you know what, I'm done with the death penalty. But we currently have nine members of the court who say, hey, the death penalty is constitutional. Now we're really fighting about the Eighth Amendment. And yet we've seen interesting signals from the court in the last year or so that at least some of the justices feel like something is profoundly wrong with the way the death penalty is administered. So do you have a sense of where the court's head is, so to speak, on this question, the sort of larger question of the death penalty, and then the smaller question of where lethal injection fits into that? Well, I I separate the lethal injection issues from the death penalty process itself. I think they're two separate arguments. That doesn't mean that uh, problems with Uh, the execution process don't reflect poorly on the death penalty or the fact that we have a punishment that's so problematic and uh, so irresponsible in many ways. At the same time, they're two separate issues. So I can see the court looking at this and the Eighth Amendment arguments uh, concerning lethal injection and not being affected by how this should affect the death penalty. In fact, that would be the better approach for them to make. That said, I did want to emphasize one thing about these two opinions. Until Bayes, until Bayes v. Reese in 2008, there had been no Eighth Amendment case in the history of this country that had ever reviewed the constitutionality of any execution method. There had been cert grants in the case of uh, electrocution in, in 2009, but that's the first time the United States Supreme Court ever reviewed the constitutionality of any method of execution under the Eighth Amendment. So it's striking that it's only seven years later that the court's doing it again. And yet, I think what you're saying, what I'm hearing you say is this can be, in fact, a very narrow ruling about a specific drug or several specific drugs, and that the court certainly could stay away from a larger question about the death penalty in general or even lethal injection in general. It simply could come down to how Oklahoma administers a certain drug. That's right. I mean, the United States Supreme Court could use Glossop in a very narrow way and review only the use of a particular drug in in a particular state, that state being Oklahoma. In Bayes, the court's holding was also very narrow. It applied only to the state of Kentucky and how Kentucky used its three-drug formula, even though other states, of course, throughout the country were also using that three-drug formula. Let's talk for just a minute about the extent to which the death penalty is kind of It's simply declining in this country. I think support for the death penalty declining slightly but not significantly. But the 
pure raw amount of executions we carry out is decreasing. Is that in part because of all these problems with lethal injection? Or is that reflective of a larger trend that's going on in this country? Are we kind of off the death penalty or going off it? Or is it just a problem of we can't figure out how to kill people? We've seen a marked decline in execution since 1999 in this country, and last year we've had the fewest executions than we've had in, in decades. Uh, I think that's due to, to several matters or several issues. Number one, lethal injection litigation has had a marked influence on the decline in executions. It's made uh, Department of Corrections, it's made it much harder for them to execute and to execute it in a way that's not controversial. But there are much larger issues going on. We've had evolving standards of decency uh, and a change in perspective in this country, uh, just generally toward many other issues. Uh, that being said, we've also had changes in, in issues pertaining directly to the death penalty. I think uh, the innocence cases have had a large impact. I think the fact that uh, there's more pronounced recognition of racial disparities in the death penalty, that uh, the disproportionate number of people in, being executed are low-income, impoverished individuals who have, who have poor counsel. I think all these factors uh, gather together and have a snowball effect. I want to flag for one moment the response I very, very often get when I talk about lethal injection, I'm sure you get the same, is, look, these people are heinous murders, right? These are, are child rapists, and they are serial killers, and they are the worst of the worst. And why are we fussing about how cruel it is that they die? In fact, I often hear from people who think they should be killed in much more cruel ways. And help us frame why this matters, why it matters that they shouldn't be subject to a death that, in some cases at least, it sounds like amounts to torture. It's understandable for the public to think heated thoughts about individuals, defendants who commit horrible crimes, and many of these people have. Uh, we also know in many of these cases that these people truly are guilty. They're not subject to DNA testing or something like that. At the same time, a big part of this country is our steadfast belief documented in the Eighth Amendment Cruel and Unusual Punishment Clause, that when the government has control over individuals, that we ensure that those individuals are treated in a humane manner and that they not be abused. So this is a big part of our country. It's a big part of our identity that we, we protect individuals even if they've committed horrible crimes. And do you think, and this is my really lingering question, that the U.S. Supreme Court will be affected by these botched executions, by the public sense that we're getting it wrong, and possibly even by the growing sense, it seems to me, that it's not clear we're going to figure out a way to get it right? I think the United States Supreme Court is not immune by any means to public opinion. If they've been reading the newspaper, they know how many botches have occurred and how seriously people take them and how appalled we all are by the way Department of Corrections carrying out these uh, executions. I think the court is aware that if there is another major botched execution, the people will throw their hands up and no longer support the death penalty. Deborah Denno is a professor at Fordham University School of Law. She's a national expert on the death penalty. Deborah, thank you very, very much for joining us today on Amicus. Thank you. Amicus is sponsored by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, the new documentary series from HBO. 
Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8 on HBO, starting this Sunday. The Jinx is filmmaker Andrew Jarecki's six-part examination of Robert Durst, the reclusive millionaire at the heart of three murders. It exposes long-buried information discovered during their seven-year investigation of a series of unsolved crimes. It was made with the cooperation of Durst, who has consistently maintained his innocence and remains a free man today. The Jinx comes from Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling, the Oscar nominees behind Capturing the Freedmans. Durst came to know Jarecki after the release of his feature film, All Good Things, a fictional account of Durst's life starring Ryan Gosling and Kirsten Dunst. The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, starts February 8th and airs Sundays at 8, only on HBO. And that's it for this episode of Slate's Amicus Podcast. Please let us know what you thought about today's episode. Our email address is amicus at slate.com. That's A-M-I-C-U-S at slate.com. We really love your letters. We would also love to hear your thoughts about Slate Podcasts more generally. The podcast team here has created a survey to tell us a little more about our listeners, the podcasts you enjoy, how often you listen to them, and how you find out about new podcasts. Please consider taking a couple of minutes to fill out the survey. You'll find it at slate.com slash survey and in the show notes for today's episode. Excerpts from the Supreme Court's public sessions are provided by OYE, that's O-Y-E-Z, a free law project at the Chicago Kent College of Law, part of the Illinois Institute of Technology. Thank you so much to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is taped. Our producer is Tony Field. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and we will be back with you soon for another edition of Amicus. I'm David Plotz. This week on the Slate Political Gab Fest, our helicopter came under attack. We barely made it to the studio, but we're here. Should helicopter exaggerator Brian Williams be drummed out of journalism? Look for us in the Slate store on iTunes or at slate.com slash podcasts. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.